This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Girl in the Mirror, Rose Carlisle talks to Philippa Duffy about what happens to a story when a book is snapped up by Hollywood. Tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome, everybody. And uh, it's only been said to me once today, so happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room uh, and also your significant others. And also a happy birthday, believe it or not, to Rose Carlisle. She gets the quinella today. Um, so co Philippa Duffy, Toka Ingawa, Haere Mai, and welcome to this session for the amazing Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival 2021. Um, I'm here with former lawyer, former sailor, possibly, and best-selling debut writer, Rose Carlyle. Um, today we'll just enjoy a wide-ranging conversation about the book, um, her writing life, uh, also, we'll have a few minutes for questions at the end uh, about girl in the girl in the mirror, which I hope many of you have had a chance to read, and those of you who haven't will take the opportunity. Um, once we get to question time, there'll be some roving microphones, and uh, the f- fabulous festival volunteers will be taking it around. So if you could please just wait for the mic. Um, that way everyone in the audience can hear, particularly those like me who do have uh, some hearing difficulties. Um, so, Rose, welcome back to Dunedin. Rose is a proud alumna of the University of Otago and law school from the era of Scarfies. So what do you remember or not remember about your student days? Um, I remember being really, really cold <laughs> <laughs> and going to the Hocken to study because it was warm. <laughs> not much has changed. <laughs> But I had a really great time when I was here. I remember it snowed for three weeks. At one point, the snow was on the ground for three weeks, and which I've heard doesn't, hasn't really happened for a long time, but I really loved that because I always wanted to live in the snow when I was a kid, and of course, growing up in Auckland never happened. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, great. And so you did a law degree, but did you dilly-dally around in other subjects as well, law? Well, I actually sort of raced through my law degree and was off practicing law at 21, which is a bit crazy, really. (laughs) But I did manage to fit in some English papers as well. So I have fond memories of the Otago University English Department. And I I kind of regret that I didn't go further because I remember just sort of telling my lecturers that I have to drop English because my student loan's too big and... Yeah, now I I always wondered later, maybe I could have made a career. Well, I kind of have made a career of English, but it took me a while. Well, as a mature student who's graduating this coming Saturday, it's never too late, so maybe you could start (laughs) studying some things again. Um, And you were talking just in the green room with Fiona Farrell, actually, about um, the sense of place when you came back to Dunedin and discussing the, the sky. So, yeah, how does the landscape of place contrast for you here? It's funny how little it's changed and I just love the old buildings here and I love the the seasons, the real sense of different seasons because the trees really do lose their leaves and I remember that beautiful, I think it's a giant Himalayan pink tulip tree at the university that I used to love every spring when it gave hope of warm weather to come. Big magnolia, yes. Yeah. Um, and the sky, I just love the sky and Te Waipunamu. It's just 
unique. I've never been anywhere else in the world with that colour and so whenever I know I'm coming, I get excited about it. So for those of you who have read the book but also for those of you who haven't, Rose has a real um, skill at a sense of place and there are some amazing locations in um, The Girl in the Mirror. So it's you know an interesting thing also when you sort of see and hear what a author will find um, and be perceptive about. Um, so Rose, when Mike White and staff, he interviewed you back in August 2020 and you said to him, I'm a nobody. I feel like everybody else is an author and I'm just an interesting sorry, I'm just an ordinary person who wrote a book. And my book's kind of about that imposter syndrome of feeling like you're not really the real thing. So now with the success of this book, how's that imposter, imposter syndrome feeling working out for you now? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, everyone has imposter syndrome a little bit because we compare our own inner lives with other people's outer lives and especially with social media you know we see so I made sure I made a comment in the book about how when Iris moves away from her twin sister to go to a different university she now sees her sister through social media and so her sister seems even more perfect than before but I think as you grow older you you start to realize that you are, you're not comparing apples with apples when you look at your own messy house and messy life and compare it with the perfect photographs on social media. So, um, yeah, I think just getting older means that you realise that everyone has their problems but they don't often share them so you can easily think that everyone else is having a wonderful life when actually even the most successful people have got problems and are not always that happy. Yes. Yeah. As I was explaining to my son this morning that I'm glamorously interviewing this amazing author today and he was, Mum, I can't find my mouth guard and I've got to get to the Tyree Sevens and it was just that reality of, yes, <laughs> things may appear on one side versus reality. <laughs> now to Girl in the Mirror. So this has been described as a thriller with identical twins, fast yachts, tropical harbours, secrets and deceit an enormous fortune, sex and crocodiles. So could you unpack that a little for us? As to me, it sounds fairly ambitious, and yet it really does sum it up. Yeah, well, I'm glad no one said to me, you have to put these things in your novel. <laughs> <laughs> I would have really struggled to fit all of that in, but I guess after it's written, someone can come along and pick out all the interesting bits and... Yeah, it does have all of that in it. And it was really fun to write something that had a whole lot of exciting elements in it. You know, I just wanted to create... I think we write for two reasons. One of them is to escape into a happy dream world. And the other reason, paradoxically, is to read about other people's terrible problems so that our lives seem a lot better afterwards. And I feel like that's what happens in The Girl in the Mirror, that you start it and you're like, oh, I wish I could be Iris. She's 23 and she's beautiful and, and she's already you know, reasonably well off even though she doesn't have the family fortune. But by the end of the book, you're quite happy to come back to your ordinary life and just have ordinary problems like people who can't find their mouth guard. Yes. <laughs> the sort of problems that Iris had. Absolutely. So with that, I'm interested then just to pick up on all of the things that are in it because there's such a sense of pace as you read through. Is that something that just sort of came naturally like a tap flowing water or was that something that you had to work at to sustain? 
Yeah, I think it's quite hard to write a really pacey novel because the author does feel tempted to sort of dwell on the beautiful scenery and... Um, but we all hear about readers who skip the scenery, right? So you have to you have to really try to keep it to a minimum, but still convey the flavour of the setting. Nobody they talk about white room syndrome, where a novelist writes wonderful dialogue, but the characters might as well be standing in a white room because we have no idea where they are. So it's quite hard to get the balance just right. And you really, I think, you have to close your eyes and imagine yourself back there in order to think about what what is it that's really the essence of this place. So Thailand, for example, was was one location in the book, which is a very sort of bustling Asian metropolis. The island of Phuket is like, it's probably not much bigger than Waiheke. It's tiny, but it's got six million people living on it. So um, that was one extreme. And then at the other end of the yacht journey is the Seychelles, which is sort of your first taste of Africa when you when you sail across the Indian Ocean. And it's quite a sudden change from leaving Asia to arriving in an African nation. And um, it's quite a glorious country. It's just It's just like a dream just scattered over the Indian Ocean. So I really, for me writing it, it was like being able to travel when I actually couldn't because I was a solo mum by that point with four teenagers. It's just, just, you know, should be illegal for anyone to <laughs> be stuck with so many teenagers at once on their own. And so it's kind of like, it's. I mean, we all know what it's like now not to be able to travel, but I was writing in 2018 and it was my way of travelling without being able to travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, important escape as well. Um, so the settings, as you've alluded to, they just are so exotic and we know um, many of us that you and your family embarked on your own sailing adventure for a year and sailed across the Indian Ocean all the way up to the Seychelles. So that yachting lifestyle, or at least from the outside, it always appears so envious. And for you, was that travel sort of all fast yachts and fabulous locations or tell us about the sailing life? With yeah. teenagers or younger children as they would have been then. Yeah, so um, there's a saying about sailing around the world, which is that it's yacht maintenance in exotic locations. Right. <laughs> so uh, you've got to add into that homeschooling three children in exotic locations. So it's funny, it's not actually as leisurely as it sounds. It's actually quite busy with just because things that you can do so easily at home, like doing the dishes or the laundry, you're actually doing by hand and you're trying to conserve water. And um, we we spent a month on the uninhabited atoll, uh, Salomon Atoll in the Chagos Archipelago. So, um, you know, there's no dining out. You've got to eat um, the food that you've stored on your boat or you can catch fish or you can... um, collect coconuts and it feels like a full-time job just feeding the family three meals and then doing the dishes and so on let alone homeschooling them and and you know yacht maintenance so and then of course when you're sailing somebody has to be on helm 24 hours a day and several of our passages were a week long so we had to actually you know day and night so I used to get up at 2am every day for a week. So actually you're, you're exhausted a lot of the time. But, I mean, you can't complain because you chose to do it and it's amazing and wonderful. But it's, it's, not, it's not lying on the beach sipping pina colada. Right. Yeah. Excellent. And not quite dead calm out the other side either. No, well, that's the other <laughs> thing is that the, the image people have of, oh, things go terribly wrong and you're dismastered and everything. 
that's not really the case either. But of course, when you write a novel, you have to make it a bit of yes, useful. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so fantastic locations are one aspect of it, but it's also very much a story about family and in particular twin sisters in a family. And I have um, most days very happy to have three sisters. Some days not quite so happy to have three sisters. And you catch the dy- dynamic of that sort of intense sisterly twin relationship of love, hate and compete. So how much research went into making it so plausible? I have to say I made it up. (laughs) It's definitely not based on my relationship with my sister who very much helped me write the book. And sometimes people ask me, is it based on your relationship with your sister? And I have to say, if my relationship with my sister was like that, the book wouldn't exist because I... I really needed her to help me write it. So um, there are twins in our family. There are two sets of twins, my uncles and aunts. So I guess I've sort of observed them as a child and thought about what it would like, be like to be a twin. Yeah. yeah, but I'm not actually a twin myself. Yeah. And uh, in it, which these aren't spoiler alerts for anybody who hasn't read the book yet, so early on we understand that there is um, a, a mirroring uh, a, a medical mirroring of the internal organs. So one twin's organs are on the other side, sort of a perfect mirror of each other. Is that for real? <laughs> Not only is it real, but I have had three readers get in touch and tell me that they have got this wow. mirroring of their internal organs. Wow. So it doesn't always happen in twins, but that is one of the most common reasons for it to happen, that they are identical twins. And yeah. one twin is the right way round, and the other twin is the wrong, <laughs> the wrong way round. <laughs> which when you read the book, there's an aspect of that which comes into it. Um, so within it, the characters, for those who have read it, uh, they, I believe, are quite unappealing. And Iris is the main twin protagonist, and we read it in the first person for her, with full insight into her thoughts and feelings with absolutely no filter whatsoever. And she just can't help herself. Even when she starts saying nice things, she turns nasty. Um, And it's made me start imagining people on the street with sort of Iris walking around with narrated bubbles of what are they actually thinking. I mean, she has a step-nephew and she's just ghastly about him. (laughs) Um, So what's the feedback been to you on the characters and their likability or otherwise? Because there are other, you know, even just as bad characters as well. Some of the ex-wives could take an etiquette lesson potentially. So yeah, have you had any feedback on their unlikability? Yeah, so when Jane Austen wrote Emma, she said she'd written a heroine who she didn't think anyone would like. And Yet yeah, Emma turns out to be a you know beloved novel, and I feel I mean I'm not comparing myself with Jane Austen, but I do feel as though it was interesting to write someone who has all of those thoughts that no one would admit to. You know, they, they really are, as you say, no filter. But I think that's why it's interesting to you know be in her head, or at least why I found it interesting because. It's the sort of thing that no one says in a social situation. Like, you know, usually people don't actually say, oh, I find my nephew irritating and I think he's a bit slow, <laughs> you know. And so we actually get to hear someone's unfiltered thoughts. And I did find them quite transgressive because, you know, we're meant to find 
I mean, it's not just about the nephews. She's all about everyone. But, you know, we're, we're meant to be polite and motherly. And, and she's born into a certain situation where she's expected to become a mother and she just doesn't want to. And I found that quite li- almost liberating to write it because I'd never really thought about what that would be like before not to want kids. I wanted them since I was, you know, for as long as I can remember. So I, I found it interesting that people were more sympathetic towards Iris than I thought they would be. There must be something about her that... Um, appeals to people even though she's she just wants to lie by the pool and eat cake that's all she wants to do in her life <laughs> instead she ends up having to do all these awful things that she's just not interested in yeah. I think we can kind of relate to that I'd quite like to lie by a pool and eat cake for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah. so there's a competitive aspect in the book where um the the dad Mr Carmichael has this enormous fortune three ex-wives two families within it, and instead of sort of divvying things up, the first of his children to produce an heir within wedlock gets $100 million or something around about that, and he almost doesn't cover for the rest of it. So it it pits these um, siblings against each other, and he perhaps passes away slightly younger than maybe he might have been intending, which means that they are a lot um, younger when this dice is sort of cast for them. So we'll pick up on that a little bit later, but I think, uh, Rose, you are happy to read to us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Now. Um, so this is just a prologue, so I don't need to catch you up on it because it's the very beginning and it's quite short. For the first 12 days of our life, we were one person. Our father's brains and our mother's beauty swirled into one blessed embryo the sole heir to the Carmichael fortune. On the 13th day, we split. It was almost too late. One more day, and the split would have been incomplete. Summer and I would have been conjoined twins, perhaps sharing major organs, facing a choice between a lifetime shackled together and a surgical separation that might have left us maimed. As it was, our rupture was imperfect. We might look identical, more than most twins, But we're mirror twins, mirror images of each other. The minute asymmetries in my sister's face, her fuller right cheek, her higher right cheekbone, are reproduced in my face on the left side. Other people can't see the difference, but when I look in the mirror, I don't see myself. I see Summer. When we were six years old, Dad took a sabbatical from Carmichael Brothers and our family sailed up the east coast of Australia and into Southeast Asia. Our hometown, Wakefield, is the last safe place to swim before you enter croc territory. So Summer and I, and our younger brother, Ben, spent a lot of time on that cruise, playing inside our yacht. I loved everything about Bathsheba. She was a custom-built sloop. Her sleek aluminium hull fitted out with the best timbers, teak decks, oak cabinetry. But what I loved most of all was the ingenious double mirror in the bathroom, The builder had set two mirrors into a corner at right angles, with such care that I could scarcely discern the line of intersection. When I looked squarely at either one of these mirrors, I saw summer as usual, but when I stared between them, past that line, into the corner, I saw a non-reversed image. I saw my true self. When I grow up, I'm going to have one of these mirrors in my house, I told summer watching the solemn blonde girl in the mirror mouth the words in time with my voice. 
Summer put her little hand on my chest. But Iris, I thought you liked pretending to be the right, the other way round, she said. Mirrors don't change what's on the inside. I pushed her hand away. Besides, my heart is on the right side. We were the most extreme case of mirroring the doctors had ever seen. It wasn't the facial differences, barely detectable without calipers. They had scanned my abdomen when I was a baby, and my liver, pancreas, spleen, all my organs were on the wrong side of my body. This was how the doctors knew that we had split so late. When I lay still and watched my bare chest, it was the right-hand side that rose and fell in a rhythmic flutter, proof that my heart was misplaced. Inside summer, though, everything was as it should be. Summer was perfect. That's the prologue. (laughs) So there we go. So it sets up, obviously, this relationship between the sisters and first person from from Iris. Um, Within the book... Uh, and it's a bit of a change of speed here now. Within the book, there's quite a few, for me, uncomfortable aspects around consent, um, both deceit, also around the age of consent, and adults and guardians who manoeuvre relationships in the hope of uh, their children gaining this $100 million inheritance. Was consent within the intimate relationships of the book something that you were intentionally exploring? And sort of what sort of thoughts and feedback have you had from readers about it? Well, I think it's interesting when you write a sex scene in a book that some readers assume that that's something that you find sexy and that you find attractive, whereas when you write, you know, other things that people do to each other, like murder, (laughs) nobody thinks that you're in favour of murder, right? So um, occasionally I'll have a reader who sort of feels they need to tell me, oh, I thought that scene was awful. I'm like, yeah, that was the point. It's a thriller. There's awful things in it. Um, but I was, I, I felt that I kind of had to write that scene the way that it was because um, it was such a fascinating, it raised so many questions. I've, I've since visited book clubs where everybody at the book club has a different opinion of, oh, this was you know, I'm on her side, I'm on his side. I talked to a friend of mine who said she and her husband had a big argument about who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And, of course, um, people have a different opinion sometimes as they read the book, their opinion changes. And I thought, as an author, it's not my job to give anyone answers or preach to anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of saying, what if this happened? You know, what, what do you think? And I love the fact that people have so many different opinions about it but also I mean there is also that um, the book is about people being asked to be sexualized quite early on in their lives in their teens and parents um, parents kind of promoting that because of this strange will but again it's not like I wrote that because I thought that was a good thing I mean this is obviously the thing that is actually tearing this family apart and really what what they need to do is just turn their backs on it and say, I'm just going to go and live my life and forget about this. And, um, yeah, that's kind of why I had so many children, so that you could decide which child's approach to the fortune you thought you liked the most, you know, because some of them are a lot more high-minded than others. And, yeah, that was it was just interesting to write. And I think my, my sister said to me when I was writing, people really would go crazy over $100 million. They would do crazy things, and that's what the novel's about, like, how much money would it take to tear your family apart? And 
would a hundred million dollars do it? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. knows what the trigger would be? And an interesting sort of question we were talking about in the green room was one I had around what's what's the legal context for being able to just decide one child will get the the whole fortune in New Zealand possibly that would never be able to happen without it being contested in Australia particularly back at the time when the book was set that may have been possible Um. yeah so I know that we have our law in New Zealand is quite interventionist with wills so a will that is um, unfair can be quite easily challenged and it's considered that everybody has a duty to provide for their family um even beyond mere subsistence. So that's another reason why this story wouldn't have really worked if, if that family had lived in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but other countries are much, give much more freedom to will-makers. So I, um, I'd actually heard years ago about this Toronto millionaire who died um, at the start of the Great Depression, and he left his fortune to any member of the public living in Toronto who had had the most children in the 10 years following his death. And, I mean, this was actually... This had terrible consequences um, because it was the Great Depression. So people really did set their sights on this fortune and um, there were a number of women who had eight or nine or ten children in the following years. And they really... And then, of course, they had to wait 10 years to get the money and they really couldn't afford... To have that many children, and I sort of feel like, in comparison with real life, the the story is quite tame. (laughs) Interesting. Now, yours isn't really a typical publishing story. So, this is Rose's first manuscript. It was uh, her first approach to publishers. It has been turned and accepted uh, into a book and gone away to be a bestseller in New Zealand and um, overseas. So tell us a bit about how it played out for you from concept to writing to publishing publishing submission and beyond because it's just so not typical and yet, you know, absolutely you're to be applauded for it and well done. Yeah, it was a real roller coaster right from the start because as soon as uh, my sister and I came up with the idea for the novel together, we felt like it's got great potential. And she kept saying to me, you've got to get this right. <laughs> you've got to get this right. Um, I'm not going to let you get it wrong. <laughs> and so it was written quite quickly. I just couldn't stop writing, even though I was really, really busy with the four teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I also didn't really know much about publishing and who to send it to. But I'd heard that Alan and Unwin were a great publisher. So I just sent it to them and then waited to hear back from them. And then they accepted it, and I was really excited. And then I discovered... And then they said, oh, it's not going to come out for about 18 months. And I thought, oh, so 18 months when nothing happens. I just wait for it to be published. Nothing could be further from the truth, because actually what happens long before a book is published is that it gets taken to international book fairs, and it comes to the attention of book-to-film agents. And so... um, all these exciting things happened before the book had even hit the shelves, that it got sold to America and then it got sold to the UK. And then a book-to-film agent got interested and then actually managed to sell it to um, a Hollywood studio and um, translations started to happen. So it was actually almost the most exciting time (laughs) 
you know, sort of even six months before it was published. It wasn't even finalised. So I was quite horrified when I discovered people were reading the manuscript because I was going, it hasn't been properly edited yet. <laughs> but it went off all around the world and it's kind of unedited form. And, um, yeah, it was it was just a bit of a crazy dream, really, because I kept needing to pinch myself. I still do. I still find myself thinking, wow, that really happened. Yeah. So as you've just alluded to, film rights are being whispered about and increasingly loudly. What can you tell us about that or where it is in the film sort of production cycle? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting that when when you sell a book, it's just one moment where they either make you an offer or don't make you an offer, whereas with film it's much more complicated because they have to, um, you know, first you get an agent and then you actually sell it and then usually they just buy an option and then they might and then they might start working on it, and then at any point it might actually fall apart, they say, until mm. the cameras are rolling, it's not certain. Right. But so far everything's continuing. Okay. It hasn't fallen apart. Yeah. So um, so I'm not really allowed to say very much, but it is um, a Hollywood studio. Okay. So um, And, yeah, even with COVID, it hasn't really slowed it down. They're still... Right. It's still in the work. And so, do you have a yeah. role within that, or is it just um, buy the great frock, wait for the red carpet, or is there something that you'll you'll be, if you can talk about it, um, a part of during this process from you know now to film? Yeah, I am quite lucky that I that I have rights to be consulted on it. Whereas, because um, I, I mean, I didn't really know much about this either. Obviously, I mean, who would, right? <laughs> like, there's no manual on what to do yes. when Hollywood comes knocking. Of course. So um, you have to kind of be, you know, Stephen King before you can actually have creative control. In fact, most people just have to hand it over. But I'm somewhere in the middle, so I do get consulted mm-hmm. about creative decisions. So, yeah, yeah I, I feel quite lucky to be able to do that. But I've also realised that when you, you know, a book is a solitary endeavour, whereas a movie involves a lot of different people, Um and so you are collaborating and it's no longer your solo vision. You've got to accept that other people will have their interpretation as well. You can't be too much of a control freak, you know. You can't say, I demand to turn up on set and say what colour the, the actresses should be wearing in this scene because that's just not going to work. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, and so what do the four teenagers then think about this, you know, meteoric rise to, to, to stardom so far? I think they're a bit surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, they definitely um, they sort of ignore uh, ignored the book when it was being written. Um, they were kind of interested, but they just sort of assumed it was a hobby. Mm-hmm. And um, and then suddenly, I sort of had to say to them, um, you know, the girl in the mirror is paying the bills now, so we have to we have to respect the girl in the mirror. <laughs> And have they have they read it in any sort of shape or form, either before publishing or? Yeah, they did. They read it with the sex scenes taken out because right. <laughs> they were a bit. I mean, who wants to read mum's writing, you know? So, but they were actually quite useful to bounce it off in yeah. the early days. Yeah. And then, what does the rest of the family, particularly your your sister, who, as you've mentioned, has had um, some part in the you know germination of the ideas around it? How how are they taking it in their stride, or is it all a bit unbelievable? Oh, they're just over the moon. Yeah, they're just delighted by it. yeah. I mean. 
my sister's not surprised at all. The day we came up with the idea, we were having lunch together, and then I drove home over the Harbour Bridge, and I remember that the phone rang as I was just as I was coming over the bridge, and um, my sister said, "Oh, I've thought of a name for the main character," and I immediately thought I'd actually thought of one after I left. So just as I was driving, I'd already thought of Iris. So I thought I'll be polite. Like, okay, <laughs> what would you like to call her? And she said, "Iris." So I just about drove off the road. And then the next thing she said to me was, this book's going to go all the way to Hollywood. So the whole way through, she's just been saying, I told you, remember? (laughs) So she had more faith in it than me right from the start. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, this is why she was so useful, because she did both of the things that you need as a writer, which is she was totally my cheerleading squad, but she was also my most critical reader, and that's something that you really need as well. You know, she would she would tell me, "This is boring. You've gone wrong. Stop. Write this chapter again." Okay. Yeah, and she was always right. Yeah. So perhaps then <laughs> that helped the publishing story because it was already um, polished a lot more before it arrived at. Um, is it Jenny Helen's desk, the Ellen and Unwin? Yeah, yeah I think my here? sister's the best editor in New Zealand, but right. I'm not <laughs> advertising her because she doesn't want to do anyone else's books. So, <laughs> so I can say that because I don't have a New Zealand editor. Yeah, yeah, and what a gift. It's enabled you to give up your day job, hasn't it, and, and work as a full-time writer. Is that something you had always aspired to? Or? I think you just hear over and over again that you can't be a full-time writer in New Zealand. You just hear that so many times that I I would have been quite content, really, to just keep on writing, mm. you know, early in the morning. But um, the other side of it is that it almost feels like I've published 10 or 11 books because there are so many translations and, you know, the American edition has got all the American spelling and, and you have to... You, you actually do a lot of admin and publicity... Yeah. And so it's almost like that's my new day job is is doing all of that and then I still write early in the morning. So my life hasn't really changed that much. Okay. Yeah. So it came out, was it August 2020, thereabouts? Yeah. So I guess there's a COVID effect to it. You won't have been travelling overseas to promote it and attending the festivals yourself. So are there other vehicles of promotion that have um, happened for you? Like I imagine lots of Zoom interviews or... How's that played out? Yeah, I mean, you know, with something like COVID, you have to put your dreams in perspective. You know, for other people, it's life and death. And for me, it's just how many copies of my book will I sell? You can't really go around stamping your feet, you know. So I always, I mean, I just at first thought, oh, this could be so terrible that, you know, the book doesn't even ever come out. Maybe mm-hmm. people will be so busy keeping themselves alive that nobody will buy any books and that'll all be cancelled. So I was just always grateful that it actually people did keep buying books. In fact, they bought more than ever. Yes, thank you, Dunedin <laughs> and the other book-buying public. Yeah, um, and so I couldn't really complain about small things, but there were a couple of overseas trips to festivals and so on that didn't happen. And, yeah, that was... Overall, I was pretty lucky. The book... Um, you know, the book was in bookshops when it was meant to and the release wasn't delayed. The UK mm-hmm. release has been delayed, but, you know, you just okay. have to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. And and they always do it for 
the best and right reasons, which sometimes actually can end up meaning uh, it finds its right time, I suppose, just as a bookseller. It's, you know, there are certain books where we've seen them and the publication has been delayed, but it is the right thing because it enables it to perhaps have its own groove in its own niche as opposed to in amongst so many others. So hopefully, yeah. Well, I mean, bookshops were closed on the day it was meant to come out. They were still in full lockdown. All the bookshops in the UK were closed. So I woke up that morning and thought, oh, my book should be out in the UK. But I mean, thank goodness it isn't because it it wouldn't be anyway. So it's now coming out in July. Great. Okay. Um, I was intrigued that you told me that when you wrote The Girl in the Mirror, that you hadn't actually been to Queensland and um, yet you wrote it so convincingly. Talk to me a little bit about that and whether you've been to Queensland since. Yeah, it felt a bit strange because I'm pretending to have been born there and be an Australian. Um, But I, I hadn't gone there when I wrote the first draft. My sister had been many times and kept telling me it was all perfect. There were no... There was nothing that needed to change. But then I actually went there um, to make sure that I had got it right and to mm-hmm. see if there was anything I needed to change. And um, I did change some of the book at that point. But, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I've met lots of writers who write about countries they've never been to and they don't go over there and check before the book comes out. I guess they use Google Maps and that sort of yeah. thing. And, I mean, the whole genesis of the book was that I'd met a whole lot of sailors who'd come up through Queensland and they'd talked about what happens when you hit croc territory and how suddenly you go from kids just jumping off the yacht whenever they want to to or you're all inside the yacht and when we go to shore you have to the kids have to sit in the middle of the dinghy they can't sit on the gunnels and then when you get to the beach it's kind of drive up the beach and jump out and run up the beach. It sounds terrifying. They're all just so relaxed about this. Yeah, so I was really struck by that because we were with a lot of Australians crossing the Indian Ocean. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's sort of a flotilla of you going up that would meet in certain ports or you sort of, how does that work? Well, sailing's very individualistic. You have to just follow your own timetable, but you tend to keep meeting the same people who are mm-hmm. who are following the seasons the same as you. So we met people, we met other families in Thailand and then we'd meet them again in Sri Lanka and then we'd meet them again in the Seychelles and, right. yeah, yeah. carrying on. Yeah. So it seems to me that Australia is then very much something that's sort of under your skin and the Australian landscape and lifestyle in Queensland. So you're writing another novel set in Australia, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think I've got used to writing in Australia and it's almost easier than writing um, a place you know really well where you you can't imagine you can't imagine up a landscape mm-hmm. because you've got the real landscape so clear in your mind that you have to be true to life whereas mm-hmm. um, with the girl in the mirror I just made up a town yeah I think that's easier in some ways it's like right when you write a character other writers like to write autobiographical novels but I like to create an imaginary character who's quite different from myself and I think that's actually easier Okay, and so writing uh, another novel at the moment are you doing any other sort of writing or straight into the novel because you've, you've almost been propelled into the writerly world that you weren't part of beforehand, so has it sort of triggered any other creative writing or you know, poetry or short stories or personal essays that you're doing as well or is it the 
the hard graft of the next novel? Well, it's quite weird. This is why I feel like an imposter because um, I only write novels, you know. I don't have a whole bunch of short stories or poems that are waiting to be published or anything. So I've, you know, just written this one novel. And then um, I had a great publicist in Australia who got me um, an article and it was going to go in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age and couple of other big newspapers in Australia and I was going, can't I just write something for my local rag first and build up? Does it have to be that I'm not a journalist? The first article I ever write, they want to put it in the Sydney Morning Herald and I was terrified of it because I just felt like they sort of assume, oh, you're a writer, so of course you can also be a journalist and <laughs> and I was like, I have to learn how to be a journalist now. I've got one week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, quick study, I'm sure. The yeah, because they are so different. So I, if someone asked me to write a short story, I'd have to go away and learn how to write one. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just, yes. can't just. Maybe some people can just blat it out, but or a children's book. You know, I'd have to learn how to write a children's book because I only know how to write novels. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any other novelists? that you enjoy reading and that sort of um, sort of not that you would copy them at all but sort of aspire to or enjoy their voice or their style or their genre or is it yeah um, yeah I don't I think I just write really differently from what I love reading so I mean um, like Catherine Chidgey for example who's up for the New Zealand Book Awards I think her writing's amazing and I love it and it's nothing like mine at all so um, and I've always read um, 19th century novels, you know, mm-hmm. Jane Eyre and Jane Austen and George Eliot and yeah. and long Russian novels. Um, so I don't think that what you love reading necessarily translates to what comes out. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, that's a good good place for others to perhaps ask their questions as, as well. We've got a microphone somewhere, so if you just want to put your hands up and I'll do some gentle um, gentle directing from anyone. So who has some questions? I'm, I'm just wondering about the decision to do a thriller. Is that your natural? That's what you, how you see the you, the world almost. Like the, the thriller is what attracted you, or was it just um, commercial that you said, "How are we going to make some money that go, <laughs> with your sister?" No, I didn't even know it was a thriller. <laughs> I honestly didn't know it was a thriller. I even sent it off to the publisher, and I didn't know it was a thriller. And. Um, they had to tell me, oh, you've written a thriller. <laughs> really? Is that what it is? Because I sort of, you know, it's not one of those books that where it's life and death right from the beginning or where it starts with finding a dead body and trying to figure out who committed the crime. So um, it's all, my, my main character doesn't know she's in a thriller, so maybe that's why I didn't know I was in a thriller either. Yeah. So have you got any idea why they took an interest in it? Do you think there's a particular theme or potential um, things we can read into it that they think, that the publishers think that are current or, yeah, that, we, that the public would perhaps, you know, um, debate or challenge amongst themselves? Is there any particular strong theme like that that they, you think they might, or did they say why they picked up on it so quickly? Oh, that's a good question. Why did they like it? <laughs> um, I mean, there are trends in publishing and in the film industry, but they say you can never aim at those trends because by the time you've written your book, 
they'll have moved on. So um, I know that because my son, who's at film school, read read it and said, "Ah, oh, it's it's written like a movie script. You were obviously planning to get it made into a movie." And I was just laughing at him, going, "I had no idea that you know somebody might actually want to make it into a movie. I didn't. I I don't know how to write a book." any other way. This is obviously just how I see books. But I guess it's quite sort of visual and action-packed so they can easily imagine it on the screen, you know, whereas some novels that are just really, really beautiful on the page might be very contemplative or they might be very poetic language and so it's really hard to get, you know, or it's all happening inside the narrator's mind. It's very hard to put something like that on the screen, whereas this is much more... um, action and yeah and they even said it's quite easy to film on a yacht with covid restrictions in america because <laughs> yeah there, there's not many people on the yacht at the same time so, so yeah it's, right location in its own bubble a note to self for next writing yeah i, mean, I would never have thought of that but there are actually no crowd scenes really yeah, so that's yeah. quite lucky but right. yeah of course it's not like i knew covid was going to happen and i shouldn't write crowd scenes right. so that was just luck yeah and i was thinking that you might have done the list of what fabulous places would i like to go to location on as well for if it is being filmed I think that's what I would do as well but, oh yeah but um, they don't they often a... <laughs> don't go to the place you know they just go somewhere that looks the same so I think for authenticity they must they must <laughs> must go back to the Seychelles anyway there was another question just here at the front what have your colleagues um or what, what has been the reaction of your colleagues you know here you are this lawyer and then suddenly you've written this best-selling book do they still take you seriously <laughs> <laughs> as a lawyer <laughs> I think you're assuming they used to take me. <laughs> oh, it's weird how many lawyers say that they kind of want to write a book too. You know, like that's been the most common reaction from other lawyers is, oh, yeah, I've kind of got a novel in the back of my mind. So I just say no time like the present, you know, you just got to do it. Yeah. Hmm. But actually, I'll just add to that. If everyone starts out as an unpublished novelist and you do feel like you're just a nutter, people just go, oh, you're a writer, what have you published? And you say nothing, and then they kind of go, oh. <laughs> and you can see them thinking, and it's never going to happen. And you, everyone has to go through that stage of feeling a little bit silly. And you know, we, And I think that's why published novelists are so nice to unpublished novelists, because we all started there. We've all had to go through it, and it's quite hard. Yeah. yeah, it's a very generous perspective, I think. Well, I got amazing generosity from published authors, you know, like when I was brave enough to talk to them. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to write too. They're always really generous and lovely, yeah. Mm. One writer once said to me, it's not as if all the writers are trying out to get onto the same cricket team or into the same, you know, steel netball team. It's not like you're going to take to take their place, it's just, you know, the book will find its own way. So. Yeah, it's quite the opposite, really, because then people are like, oh, I love, I've, I've read one New Zealand book that I liked, I'm going to look for another one. So you'll sort of Build buoy together. each other up. Yeah. yeah, A rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely. And there's a question at the back, Nicola. There's a twist right at the end, and I'm just wondering if you thought that uh, maybe there might be uh, a continuation or you might take the story further? Yeah, I've got no plans to write a sequel, but yeah, I have had some people 
ask me to. And yeah, I've even had people give me some plot outlines. For <laughs> <laughs> None of which fit with the other ones. So yeah, yeah. Interesting. And I'm just, while well, anyone else is thinking, I'm always intrigued when books go in translation. So sort of what sort of languages and countries have it gone to that are sort of, sort of not quite run-of-the-mill or a little bit unique? So there's eight translations, but two of them are Portuguese. Like, how weird is that? So there's one for Portugal and one for Brazil. I don't know whether they just use the same text. But, yeah, there's some really weird ones. So the very first, the only one I've actually got in my hot little hand is the Macedonian one. And, of course, I sat there <laughs> trying to read it. <laughs> Because I was like, oh, how did they translate this? And and um, my son sort of tried to teach himself Russian a couple of years ago, so I got him to come over and and I was like, come on, you should be able to read this. <laughs> um, but they did actually have 45 footnotes and I could kind of tell what the footnotes were about. It was quite, um, oh. quite reassuring that I could see where anywhere that there was sort of something that would be untranslatable. They'd, they'd given a footnote, and I could tell because they'd put the English word. Oh, good, they've actually explained okay. explained that. Because what does a reader in Macedonia think of this story? I just can't imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Possibly twin sisterly family dynamics are the same the world over, uh, Macedonia or not. But, um, yeah. I'm intrigued that they would footnote things where they sort of um, – Cultural explanations or, yeah. Well, like even in this prologue that I just read you where it talks about, oh, my heart is on the right side of my body. She's obviously saying that in two different ways, you know, like she's saying it's... Correct. It is correct as well as the right-hand side. And there's a a few moments like that in the book where I didn't intend to, but I sort of used the double meaning Mm -hmm. of words. And so, and I saw um, the footnote and I was, because I can't actually read... Cyrillic a little bit and I saw the, a word dexterous or something I thought yeah that means right hand side and then the other word was like correct and I thought great they're explaining because obviously in Macedonia they don't have one word that means two things right. those two things so let's yeah. just pick up on that a little bit you can read a little bit of Cyrillic <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me more <laughs> well uh, well years ago when I was traveling with my kids and we were going to Russia, and I was quite scared of going to Russia. Um, so I just quickly learned the alphabet on the plane. And it's incredibly useful when you're in Russia because a lot of their words are actually just English words in the Cyrillic alphabet. So um, I could go around saying, oh, that's an internet cafe, and, and you know, that's a stop sign. It says stop in English. Um, so it's quite useful just to know the script. And, and with the um, Macedonian translation it was it was weird it was like because I also learnt Latin for a while and I was going oh I can't actually tell what this sentence says it helps that I know the book wow so. yes, exactly <laughs> you see you know oh, that's that's fascinating I'm interested in old I stayed up way too late at night look I swore I would not try to read Macedonian I thought <laughs> this is stupid and then when I got the book I was like oh I just really want to know what it looks like yeah so I stayed up really late at night trying to read footnotes in Macedonia I think Rose will be downloading the Duolingo uh, app on her phone for Macedonian when she returns on the plane (laughs) (laughs) and next novel maybe something set in Macedonia potentially I'd love to go there actually like now that the translation came out and I've got some Instagram followers there and I started following them back and it's just the most glamorous country they all just look like a sort of dark gothic Alice in Wonderland 
and it's uh, yeah, I'd love to travel there. But yeah. right. note to the book selling. Sorry, festival trustees here. Field field trip to Macedonia for the Macedonian festival, twenty twenty three. Um, yeah, so probably we've got time for just one last question. So I was just wondering how often you go for lunch with your sister. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, quite often, actually. Yeah, I mean, sort of every milestone in publishing we've tried to do together. So um, when the audio book audition tapes came, I um, because she really she was working on a manuscript and she really set it aside to help me with this. So, um, I you know I went and we had lunch together and listened to the audio tapes. Like, I didn't listen until she was there. We listened for the first time together, and we were so excited that we both cried. <laughs> um, and then, But when the author copies came, we were in lockdown, so I opened them on a Zoom call, which was kind of tragic, but, you know, better than not being able to do it at all. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. When, when the book came out um, and it was sold to us as... Where have I got it here? You know, the ident- it's a thriller with identical twins, fast yachts, tropical harbours, secrets and deceit, sex and crocodiles from a new author you've never heard before who's not written anything and is a lawyer by day. Um, Bronwyn did as she should and said, we'll just take the six copies, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then just as lockdown was coming up, the buyer on the bus with her mask on couldn't get her mask off fast enough and she got to work and say, my God, there's a one size billboards all through Northeast Valley. We've never seen that before. Quick, change the six to 60. And, um, you know, and quickly reordered. So, oh, I, did you have billboards here? There were billboards in Northeast Valley. Oh. We've never seen the like. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. <laughs> so, yeah, so it is a, it's my 20 years in the book and publishing industry. This is a remarkable story, and um, you, you shouldn't feel imposter syndrome anymore. And we are so in, enormously grateful that you would come down to, to Dunedin. Um, where you've seen your alma mater again. Um, Dunedin, we're always incredibly proud of our alumna, um, and particularly in a city of literature. So um, Rose will be happy to put her imposter syndrome aside for a few minutes and sign books out uh, at the foyer, and um, you can have a chat with her. Um, Thank you to each and every one of you for coming along and supporting the festival, um, and particularly those festival sponsors that we have. Thank you to the hardworking festival team. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to Rose. Uh, a very happy birthday. And it's been a delight chatting with you today. So thank you very much. Thank you. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.